Hello, and welcome to Mito Action's first Wondering Wednesday, Ask the Genetic Counselor with Genetic Counselor Devin Schumann. My name is Stephanie Harry, and I'm an LCHAD parent and one of the patient support coordinators here at Mito Action, and I'll be your host for this evening. We are all very aware of how confusing genetics can be, not only when you're entering into the diagnostic journey, but even years into your diagnosis. Our first two sessions with Devin will dive into what a genetic counselor is, what they do, how they can help in your diagnostic journey, mitogenetics one-on-one, and understanding genetic testing and reports. The goal of these sessions is to make genetics more accessible to everyone and to talk through some of the common misconceptions. So you can tell there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why we decided that um, our first two sec- sessions will actually have more of a presentation format with a time for question and answer at the end. And these two sessions will both be recorded. So you can go back and review and mull over all of the great information that Devin's going to give us. Um, but starting in March, our format will change a bit and the sessions will be more informal and focused on questions brought to the meetings by attendees. Um, and so in order to protect the privacy of families and their questions, starting in March, our sessions will no longer be recorded. Rather, we will post a brief summary of these sessions and on our website um, so knowledge can still be gleaned if you miss that time and space. I want to note that this space is a little different than our traditional expert series. Um, we set this call up as a Zoom meeting, which means you have access to both video and audio. Um, so you can take this time if you, um, we would love for people to be on video if you are open to it. Um, but if you are uncomfortable with that, you're more than welcome to turn your video off as well. Um, but it's very important that you keep your audio off while you're not speaking. Um, this will give everyone a more pleasurable experience. If you have any questions during Devin's presentation, feel free to put them in the chat and I will ask for them after the presentation. Or if you would like to ask your own question after the presentation, you can raise your virtual hand and um, Devin or I will call on you. As previously stated, today's discussion will be recorded and available on Mito Action's website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. So without further ado, let me officially introduce genetic counselor Devin Schumann. Devin Schumann has a master's degree in genetic counseling from UC Irvine in California and currently works as a telehealth genetic counselor at the nonprofit Genetic Support Foundation. She has previously worked at an autism and developmental medicine center and a high-risk pregnancy center. Outside of work, Devin runs teenage and young adult-focused mitochondrial disease community supports, including two Facebook groups and a weekly Zoom support call for teens, complete with virtual proms, holiday events, and roundtables with physicians. Recent projects have included mitochondrial DNA, TED, Ed video and giving lectures to genetic counseling graduate programs about mitochondrial disease. Devin, we are so excited for all the information you're going to share. And we just, we thank you so much for taking this time and space to better educate us and prepare us as we're heading to the doctors and trying to explain things to our kids or just understand them ourselves. I'm excited to be here. I love talking about genetics, oddly enough. And there are just so many questions. And the way I put it is I was already Googling it all the time anyways, might as well turn it into a job. So by that same logic, might as well pass it along. You can tell I'm excited because I literally have mitochondria in the background and earrings on. Mito is a little giant part of my world. Now I am going to share my screen, but I also will still be able to see people's 
cameras and stuff and still be able to see the chat feature. So if people have questions, you can still put them all there as need to. And I always say I'm pretty informal. Ask me whatever you want. And if I don't know the answer, I'm the first to admit that and promise to go look it up and get back to you. So mitochondrial disease genetics 101, right? First, I'm Devin, we covered this already. I'm a genetic counselor. I also have mitochondrial disease. I use she, her pronouns. Walking into these sessions, I'm me, right? And that means I am a genetic counselor. I am a mito patient, and I'm also a family member to someone with mito. My brother has it. I've worn all of these hats, and I also firmly believe that these are not independent hats from each other. Every element of who we are shapes the other parts of our life. And for me, at least, I feel it's best not to leave them in the individual boxes. I think my training in genetics helps me be a patient and family member. And being a patient definitely helps me when I'm seeing patients. It makes it completely different, I think, than if I'd just gone through formal training. Now, diving into the presentation more, first off, what is a genetic counselor? I know you've heard of being a family member to someone with MITO or having MITO, but the genetic counseling term is often new to people or they've heard it in passing and haven't really learned much about what is that and how is that different than a physician. The only short explanation I've ever found that I like is this one from the National Society of Genetic Counseling. Genetic counseling is the process of helping people understand and adapt to medical, psychological, and familial implications of genetic contributions to disease. Still a mouthful though, so what does that mean? Essentially, a GC, which is genetic counselor for short, is someone who's there to help people understand, okay, based on family history, what's the chance you could also have a genetic syndrome or someone in your family could? When looking at genetic testing, our role is there to help people make an informed decision. I know a lot of providers kind of view genetic testing and any testing as like a prescription. You should just get assigned to do it, you go do it, and you come back. Genetic counseling is more about making that a decision that's involved with the patient. Do you want to do testing? What are the differences between them? Which test is the right test for you, if any of them are? Very centered around what do you want to get out of this? And less so, this is just a box to check. We're also there to help people once results come back, positive or negative, to process that information. What does that mean for you and your family? What does that mean for your emotions and your medical care? How can we then use those results, positive or negative, to help guide your care with your other doctors? And also, what resources can we connect to? What other specialists? How can we make sure that you're getting good care with this diagnosis? All of this is, again, easier said than done, and I fully acknowledge that. Now, a lot of people focus on genetic counseling as just before or after a test, but truly it's something that I think can be helpful throughout the diagnostic odyssey. Yes, it's helpful if you've got a clinical diagnosis of MITO and you're trying to figure out what test should I do or to review results when they come back. But we're also helpful even years down the right line, right? Like if you have a result that was an uncertain variant of VUS, well, let's recheck on that variant and see if we've learned anything new in the last five years. If you had an exome that was inconclusive, let's help you rerun it and test that data again, see if we find something now. If a test was negative in the past, especially if it's been more than a couple of years, there's a good bet that we've discovered some more genes associated with MITO or your symptoms, and maybe it's worth doing an updated test. 
family planning is also a good time to talk to us, whether you have a genetically confirmed form of mito or not. We can still walk you through how do we test for things? What are the chances other people could have it? How do we screen for that? Or can we not screen for that? What are our options? And then just to learn more updated clinical information about your diagnosis. I know so many people that saw genetics when they were a kid, and then they never went back. To be honest, a lot of what we told people 10 or 20 years ago is just not accurate today. And how are you supposed to know that if you've never seen genetics since? Honestly, your PCP is probably less likely to give you some of those updates. So sometimes it's good to check in again and just re-go over the information and see if there's something that we didn't know before or because they just gave you a lot of info the first time you talked to them and we only retain a small percentage of that. Check back in again, re-go over stuff and see if new information pops out as important to you. Now, what does it actually look like when you see a genetic counselor? I always say be prepared for a family history quiz. And I do say quiz because people feel almost like it's a test. We start asking, how many siblings do both your parents have? How many kids do they all have? How did that person pass away? How old was someone else when they were diagnosed? Now you can still do genetic counseling, even if you are, for example, adopted and don't know any of this information, but we are gonna try to pull out whatever details we can just in case there's something helpful. So I always say, this is one of those appointments you'll wanna quiz your family before you show up. I mean, we can follow up later, but a lot of people don't realize, hey, it's important to know what happened to my aunt who maybe passed away before I was even born. So I didn't even have her on my radar, but maybe that's an important clue. We try to review medical history since birth if possible. Again, that's why it's sometimes helpful to quiz your parents as you can. We're not gonna remember most of our milestones from when we're little, but they might. We are there to usually go through what are the common symptoms and treatments for a condition that's a suspected diagnosis. We often will then go over what other conditions overlap with that that we might wanna screen for at the same time. We talk about how things are inherited, how do we family plan for that, reviewing results, reviewing testing options, and then when we talk about testing other family members, the key term there is they call it cascade testing. But I think of that as like a chain of dominoes. If we test one person, then we start talking about the other people in the family. Maybe they wanna do testing. How do you even talk to them about that? How do you broach that subject? And then again, walking through what are resources that can help you with this. Now, a lot of people wonder, so what's the difference between a GC and another type of provider, like an NP or physician. Most of what's in the one column is what I just said on the other side, the things that both providers can do. I will highlight some of the differences that only GCs do is we tend to be more comfortable talking about things like direct to consumer results. So like 23andMe type stuff. We also tend to be pretty comfortable with like referring people to the undiagnosed disease network with some PCPs might not feel comfortable doing. But there are some important differences that genetic counselors aren't really trained to do. And I say trained to do because we all have a master's degree in genetics. It is not a full medical degree in the same way that like a nurse practitioner MD is. I'm not trained in prescribing medications. I am, in my opinion, luckily not trained in how to do surgeries and stuff like that. There's some clear boundaries there. And how it impacts patients, I'd say the most, is really the first couple of points. We can't do a physical evaluation as a genetic counselor. 
And so that means we can't provide a clinical diagnosis. And I'll talk a little bit about the difference there. But practically speaking, I'm not trained to do a physical exam on you and really look at what different things on your body could be clues. I'm also not trained on how to order the follow-up testing that might be indicated or the other things that can help evaluate a patient. So maybe your doctor suspects mito. Well, often what I'm going to recommend the first step is a bunch of blood work to see if we can get more clues. And that's something that a genetic counselor is not ordering unless they're paired with an MD. So often we'll say, hey, can you get some of those clues before you come in? Same for the follow-up, right? I might say, hey, you have a condition where it's really important to look at your heart or your brain. I can tell you we recommend it, but I can't go place the MRI order or place the order for an echocardiogram. So we like to try to pair with physicians, other treating providers to say, hey, this is what we recommend and why. How do you feel about actually ordering some of this? On that same note, I can't prescribe medications. I can say these meds on average are good to avoid with Mito or are recommended in certain situations based on guidelines for the condition. I can't tell you this is the dose you should take of the Mito cocktail. Again, for me, I'm okay not being trained in how to prescribe medications. That's an okay boundary in my opinion. But again, it's good to know that walking into it because some people are really looking for a provider who can do that hands-on, tell me exactly what to take and what to do. I can explain a lot, but I can't actually prescribe those next steps for you. Why I mentioned a clinical diagnosis is something that only physicians or nurse practitioners or DOs can do is because a clinical diagnosis, what that really means is that means they're looking at your symptoms, your family history, blood test results, or even muscle biopsy results, and they're saying you fit the clinical picture of MIDO. So we're giving you a clinical diagnosis of this. This can sometimes happen even if a family member has a genetic diagnosis. So for example, for me, my brother was diagnosed two years before I was. I didn't want to go do genetic testing right away. So I had a clinical diagnosis for a couple of years. And then once I had the genetic testing, it moved to a genetic diagnosis. As a genetic counselor, I can do a test, look at it and say, you have this change that indicates you have MITO. I can give you a genetic diagnosis, but I can't look at your whole list of symptoms and say, clinically, I think you have MITO from a medical point of view. I can't give you that clinical diagnosis because again, not trained in that sort of an eval. Now I will say muscle biopsies can get a little confusing sometimes because they can give you clinical info and they can also give you genetic testing. You can do that on the muscle biopsy. So sometimes that can fit you into both of these, depending on exactly what they did. And just because mito is considered a genetic condition for most, it doesn't mean that everyone will get that genetic answer right away. So you can have a clinical diagnosis of a genetic syndrome. And again, I acknowledge that can sound confusing sometimes. These are not to memorize. I'm just including them so when they're online, you can look at these later. Good resources to try to find a genetic counselor. There's some pretty good public databases you can search. There's also telehealth companies like the one I work at that I included as an example. If you want to see a geneticist and go to a genetic clinic, like if you really need that full head-to-toe eval because your doctor's not quite sure what's going on, you're going to want to look at the genetics clinic's websites on how to find a geneticist in your area. 
full disclosure, they all have pretty long wait lists right now. So I acknowledge that's a major limitation to them. My current recommendation is if you think you might need one in the next two years, get on their wait list now. You can always cancel it later. On that same note, sometimes people want to go to a mitochondrial disease clinic where often they will have specialists of all different types, genetics, endocrinology, cardiology, et cetera, all in one place to help you. Here are the three places I usually send people to try to find one of those. Again, don't need to write these down. They will appear online later. So I like to include two long didn't read summaries throughout my presentations. So the first one is, what's a genetic counselor? A provider who can take the time to walk you through emotional, financial, and medical implications of genetic testing and family history, a provider who cannot give you a clinical diagnosis or order any testing beyond genetics. Okay, so, you know, ballpark of what I do. What actually about genetics though? Genetics 101. Quick disclaimer, you'll see that I like these. Everything in genetics has an exception to the rule. So one of my favorite phrases is, we never say never in genetics. I say it to patients all day long. It's the reality of it. These slides are designed as a 101. I can guarantee you there's not a single point on one of these slides I can't tell you the exception to. Try not to poke at those too much though. I'm trying to get the broad strokes so that people understand it. But if you have a question about an exception, I'm down to dive into it. For genetics, I use a book metaphor. Why I do this is because I honestly think it helps everyone from the PhD scientists to the doctors, to the patients, to children to understand genetics in an easy to digest way. It works really well because genes are written out in letters just like a book is. So technically your DNA is a really long strain of letters, kind of balled up like yarn. It's easier to think of it as though written in a book. Our genes are the individual recipes or instruction manuals for our body. These are packaged into chromosomes. You can think of those like books. And why I say it's written out in letters is because it actually is. We call them A, T, C, and G, a fancy term. Letter, you seem to just call them that. A mutation or a variant is usually just a spelling change. Like often it is something as simple as you have an A, where most people have a T or you have a couple letters deleted and that throws off the rest of the recipe afterwards. So this metaphor, I've yet to find a genetic change. I can't make work for it. So I like it as a basic way to understand them. Pretty much the long story short is there's a lot of different types of these. You can turn any of them into a recipe metaphor, like you have too many cups of sugar or you forgot to add the chocolate chips or you didn't bake your cookies and it works pretty well. But it's important to notice there are different types of them. I will dive into that next month when I talk about how do you interpret a genetic test result and what do all those complicated words mean. But the teaser is there's a lot of them and they can be both new or inherited. So just because something's genetic does not mean always that you got it from one of your parents. It could be a new change that happened in the egg or sperm or right at conception. Now, these chromosomes, there's 23 pairs of them. I think of them as cookbooks, right? You get half your cookbooks from one parent, half of them from another. So on average, right, for each pair, you get one from mom, one from dad. That gives you two copies of most genes in our body. Typically, that's the way these work for the chromosome books, which are nuclear DNA. 
again, there's exceptions to the rule. I'll touch on some of those later for these, but it's an easy way to think about it. Two copies of everything, one from each parent. Mitochondrial DNA is also written out in letters like a book, but we call this something different because it's 39 genes only, not the 20,000 other ones, and they come in little loops. And so they're, they're viewed differently in our body because we don't just have one copy of each gene from each parent. We've got thousands of these little loops. Again, I'll touch on that later. But typically we call this mitochondrial DNA and we call what's in your chromosomes nuclear DNA. You might hear that term on testing. You might hear that term from a doctor. Now, mitochondrial DNA, we talk about that as something that's maternally inherited. And where that comes from is because you get your mitochondria in the egg cell at conception. In each mitochondria, there's little loops. Technically, sperm do have mitochondria. They just leave them behind at conception, typically. It's what powers them. And so because of that, we think of mitochondrial DNA as something that we typically only get from one of our parents, the one that gave us our egg cell at conception. Again, this will matter later. Long story short, genes are recipes for the body. We have two copies of most genes. A mutation is just a spelling variant. Now, some people say mutation, some people say variant. I could talk about the differences in an hour, but to a lot of people, there's not even a difference. Some use it interchangeably. So I will use it interchangeably to kind of convey that. That's one one on all genetics. What about mitochondrial disease, which is why people are actually here? Again, disclaimers. It can sound like when I talk about mitochondrial disease genetics that I'm viewing genetics at the end all, or I'm thinking it's the most important detail. The reality is I'm here to talk about genetics. That's mostly what I'm talking about. But based on current technology, only 20 to 40% of people clinically diagnosed with mito will be able to find their genetic answer. Those numbers seem consistent out of Asia, out of Europe, out of the US. This is also a very consistent number for other neuromuscular conditions, things like epilepsy, things like intellectual disabilities. So to me, that really indicates that this is based on our general knowledge and technology limitations and not really one condition in particular. Now, it doesn't feel great when doctors do a test and it's negative and they're like, well, you're fine. That's not how this works. And that's why my second disclaimer is genetic testing can rule in mito. It can never rule it out on its own. This is a very common misconception I see all of the time. Genetics are awesome. I will say that, but they are not the end all. And I think we are becoming a little too reliant on them sometimes. And that's why genetic counselors talk a lot about a negative test result's not always, hey, good news. And there's implications to both directions and both are still relevant to you. But again, I'm talking mostly about genetics. So I wanna acknowledge this as part of that so people do not think I'm perpetuating this very annoying misconception. This is one of the hills I will die on. I shout about it with every doctor I ever talk to at any time. Now, other disclaimer, not everyone with mitochondrial dysfunction will have an underlying mitochondrial genetic mutation. Mitochondrial dysfunction is something that we can sometimes measure like a mito swab test where we can see on muscle biopsies, there's actually a lot of causes of it. It can go with infections. You're seeing a lot of COVID, post-COVID studies talking about mitochondrial function. It can go with aging. It can happen from environmental factors or toxins. It's also seen in other genetic syndromes. 
there are other genetic syndromes that are very common that have mitochondrial dysfunction as part of how they present. So you can have someone who has mitochondrial dysfunction does genetic testing and finds a different answer. Again, not meaning that something was wrong. These things just don't exist in tight, little, easy to digest boxes. But again, that's part of why some people might not find an answer. I'm not going to just assume it's this if you have no answer, but I want to acknowledge that this is also true. One thing that I think a lot of people are surprised to hear is that for those who find a genetic cause for their mito, 80% of the time that cause is in their nuclear DNA, the chromosomal DNA you get from both your parents. Now, it could still be a new change in that DNA, but only 20% of the time is it actually in a mitochondrial DNA gene, one of those 39. And honestly, most people are unaware of this, including doctors. Most were taught when they were in school, mitochondrial disease equals mitochondrial DNA. And even recently, I've heard geneticists say, oh, well, the patient has no maternal family history of this, so it can't be mito. Yeah, that's not how that works. So I will say this again till I'm blue in the face as I try to teach people about this, because most find it surprising, but it does have a huge impact on patient care and also on misdiagnoses. Now, of that 80%, Genes typically fall into one of three categories, autosomal dominant genes, autosomal recessive genes, and X-linked genes. Again, there's always exceptions to the rule. Polgy is common enough in the mito world. I just added a star that that's an exception. Depending on the change in that gene, it can be both autosomal dominant or recessive. Again, I can talk about that more if people have questions. But the broad strokes. Remember, we have two copies of all of these genes, one from each parent. Sex chromosomes are different. I'll talk about that when I get to X-linked. But for autosomal dominant genes, what that dominant word means is that while you have two copies of the gene, if one copy isn't working, that is enough to cause symptoms. So we say that the variant is dominant over the healthy copy or the unaffected copy. There's a lot of different terms for this, and so it can get confusing, but dominant means one gene not working is enough to disrupt things. They call this being heterozygous. Again, fun terms you see on reports because your two genes are different. One has a change, one does not. They are different heterozygous. Because we have two copies of that gene, if one isn't working, it's like flipping a coin if you pass it down, right? Heads or tails. Now, some people get confused because they think, well, both parents have two copies of this gene, so there's four total, but really we only pick on the parent that carries the change. So if we only pick on them, it's a heads or tails coin flip if they pass down the working copy of the gene or the copy with a variant. So by that logic, 50-50 chance for each of their kids to be affected. For autosomal recessive genes, again, two copies of the gene, but they both have to not work before you show symptoms. So in this case, having one variant typically just makes you an unaffected carrier. Having two variants, one in each copy of the gene, is when you would typically show symptoms. Because we like to be confusing, in this case, being heterozygous means you should not show symptoms. So it's really important to think through, okay, not just how many changes do I have, 
but what do we know about the gene I have changes in? Is that a gene where you need two changes to have a problem or only one? Often in this case, we call it being compound heterozygous if you show symptoms, because it's a combination of two different variants, because on average, you don't get the same variant from both parents. It's possible, but it's not common, especially in something like Mito, where there is a whole bunch of different variants out there that can cause it. With autosomal recessive, both parents matter because they both carry it. Each of them flips that coin and you have to hit tails twice to have a child with symptoms. They both have to pass down the not working copy of the gene. So practically speaking, that means for each child, there's a one in four chance they could have the syndrome. Now, some people think that means that they have four children, only one will be affected. Sadly, that's not how statistics work, right? <laughs> for each child, it's a one in four chance. So like for my family, me and my brother are the only two siblings, we both have it. That was a one in 16 chance it would happen, but I'm kind of glad it did because now I have a buddy, right? Like it's one of those things where it can sound confusing, one in four, it's like flipping a coin. Most people can kind of boil it down to that. And again, carriers typically do not show symptoms for these. Now, X-linked is different. Mitochondrial diseases can be X-linked. It's a lot more rare, but they do exist. When we're talking about X-linked, what that means is you have a change on your X chromosome. So we skip past all the numbered ones and we get to the little box at the corner that has an XY or an XX. Most commonly, when we talk about someone's genetic sex, we are saying males have an X and a Y chromosome and girls have two X chromosomes. Now, biological sex and genetic sex is way more complicated than that. But for the purpose of mitochondrial disease inheritance, we're sticking with this. Typically, if you have a Y chromosome, you're a male. That's what makes you male is having the presence of the Y. So because of that, women typically have two copies of these genes. Guys only have one. It does give women a little bit of a strategic advantage because we've got a backup copy. So if one doesn't work, we typically use the other one. Not always, but it does typically mean that often girls will have less severe symptoms than boys in these conditions. Not always, but it does exist. And why I say not always is because, again, when someone was in med school 20 years ago, they were probably taught these are conditions that are inherited from unaffected females to their affected sons. That is very much not true. If you carry an X-linked condition, you pretty much have a zero to 100% chance of showing symptoms. They may be different symptoms. They may show up later in life. Or you may present the exact same as the classic picture that they expect only in males. Again, this can lead to a lot of issues with people getting appropriate health care. So I put it in a nice shiny box on top. Now, inheritance, we have to take it each case. So if we have a male who has an excellent condition, he only has one X chromosome. So he's either going to pass down a Y chromosome or an X. If he passes down a Y chromosome, Y makes you male on average. So that means all of his sons will get his Y chromosome and will not be affected because they will not get his X. But if he has a daughter, well, she had to get his X or else she would be a male. So all of his daughters will carry the change and be at risk of having symptoms. For females, we have two X chromosomes. It's essentially the exact same story as autosomal dominant. You flip a coin, heads or tails, which one you pass down, all of your kids, no matter their sex, have the same chance of having inherited that change. 
mitochondrial DNA. We take the chromosomal DNA and we push it totally away and you forget everything I just said for a second, right? Mitochondrial DNA, little loops of 39 genes. We have multiple copies of the mitochondrial DNA in every single mitochondria. We have multiple mitochondria in every single cell in our body and we have million cells in our bodies. We have a lot of copies of this. It is not two copies of every gene. It is millions. That makes life a lot more confusing when you have a change in one of these. So it takes a little bit more to explain these conditions. I did a whole TED talk about it, <laughs> a whole video about mitochondria and how it's inherited and the biological history of it. If you find it cool, it's a cute little cartoon. Go watch your cartoon about how it combined with humans many years ago. But I'll try to distill it down to what matters for us. Genes are written out in letters, just like a book. But instead of thinking a giant pile of books, honestly, I think it's really easy to think about each loop of DNA as like a candy. We have a bunch of candies throughout our bodies. We're all just a very yummy, colorful jar of sweets. It's a nice metaphor. For simplicity's sake, though, let's pretend you only have two types of your mitochondrial DNA, the type that's healthy and has no change, and the type that carries a variant. In this case, blue's my default favorite color to everything. You might be able to tell. Blue candies, let's call those the variants that don't have a change. Yellow candies, let's say those are the ones that have a variant within them. When you have blue and yellow candies, we call that being heteroplasmic, similar to heterozygous. Same concept, just in this case, it means you've got different copies of your mitochondrial DNA. Some have a change and some do not. In this case, if you have all of the same mitochondrial DNA, so either if they all don't have a change or they all have the same change, we call it being homoplasmic because they are the same. They all look similar. When you're passing down your DNA, honestly, you can think of this as taking a giant jug of candy and little cups and pouring candy into each of them and you're handing one to each kid. Just like if you took a giant bowl of candy that had a whole mix of blue and yellow and you poured it into cups, you can't predict what you're gonna give your kid. You might give them all blue candies. You might give them all yellow candies. Most likely you'll give them some combination in between, which means we tell parents who carry a mitochondrial DNA change that for moms, their chance of having a kid that's affected is zero to a hundred, which I know is a terribly unhelpful number, but this is a little bit of why we say that. You can't predict what you're gonna pour into each egg cell. I actually really like this metaphor because I've actually done it with kids. Take a bunch of candies, pour them out. They get very excited and they understand the concept a lot faster. Plus, it's just a yummy metaphor. If a parent does have the same variant on all copies of their mitochondrial DNA though, the big example of that is a lot of LHON variants, 100% of their children are expected to carry that change, right? If you have it in every mitochondrial DNA in your body, well, you only have yellow M&Ms to pour into those jars. By default, your kids should all just have yellow M&Ms from their mother. So some people actually say, is it even worth testing people with LHON for some of these changes if we know the parent is 100%? That's a discussion to have with a genetic counselor. Do you see benefit in doing this? Do you want to do it? Again, not everyone's going to choose to do testing, and that's totally okay and sometimes even recommended. Now, once you have your little cup of M&Ms, Part of why Mito is so confusing is you take this cup 
And then you have to multiply it throughout your entire body when you're developing as a fetus. Think of that as taking your little cup of candies and pouring them on a little drawing of a human body. I've done that for you. When that happens, the mitochondria scatter throughout and we can't predict where they go. So you may end up with a lot of the mutation in your brain or your heart or your muscles, but not in the other ones. Sometimes you see a lot of it in your blood, but not in your muscle. It can vary. We can't predict that because it's a random scattering of them. It makes it extremely hard to predict symptoms. So let's say I'm talking to a parent. She's got a mitochondrial DNA change. Very unhelpfully, I tell her there's a zero to 100% chance her kids could have it. Usually the next question is, okay, but are their symptoms going to be like mine? And I'm going to say, again, I can't tell you. <laughs> the reality is their kid could end up with a lot more of the change or in more of the change in organs that are really crucial, like the heart of the brain. It also means though, sometimes when you test someone, you get different results at different times in their life and in different samples. Yes, we like to do blood tests because they're easy, but sometimes we're finding that doing a saliva test for this actually correlates to your muscle better. So instead of doing a muscle biopsy, let's start with saliva. Maybe that's more helpful. Again, you want to talk to a doctor who understands this because it gets badly complex very quickly. But this is also, I think, helpful to understand why we can't give you straight answers. Throughout our lives, you get that first assortment. Throughout our lives, things also change. Picture that as taking your little diagram of yourself and you get sick, drop a yellow M&M. You get pregnant drop a yellow M&M and two blue M&Ms. You exercise a lot, drop a couple blue. It changes through your life. People talk about hitting a threshold for an organ system. They call that the threshold theory. Essentially, when you end up with more mitochondrial DNA with the change, you hit a point where then you show symptoms in that organ. So you might seem fine for your heart till you're in your 20s and then it pops up then or in your 40s as your body just is exposed to more stress. This doesn't just apply to the DNA itself. It honestly applies to just your mitochondrial dysfunction. Like I said, aging makes your mitochondria not work as well. So it's also pretty normal for someone to get really sick or just go through a normal life process or just age and suddenly have mito pop up for them or have their symptoms get worse because they're not static. I know I talked about them as candies, but to be honest, they're kind of like raindrops on a window. They're always merging and discombining and going back and forth. So again, simply put, your candies change throughout your life. More complicated port, your life is more like splatter paint, but we try our best to simplify it. When we use these terms, doctors talk about threshold theory, heteroplasmy, it's a way to just explain why we're also unique with MITO. Even if you have the same genetic change, if you had a mitochondrial DNA variant, maybe it's scattered through your body differently. If you have a nuclear DNA variant, maybe you were exposed to different environmental factors or you were protected by different hormones in your bodies or other genes, we have 20,000 of the other ones, right? That are playing a role and are affecting why every person can have different symptoms, even in the same family, even with the exact same genetic change. Too long, didn't read. I know that was a lot to summarize. Long story short, 80% of the time, mito is caused by nuclear changes in our chromosomal DNA we get from mom and dad. Only 20% of the time is it in our mitochondrial DNA. Only 40% of people with a clinical diagnosis of mito will find their genetic answer, 
And some people diagnosed with mitochondrial dysfunction might not have a gene that's associated with mitochondrial function that has a mutation. It could be a random other gene involving the brain or the muscle, or it could be another cause outside of genetics. We like to use a lot of fun terms. Hetero means different, so heteroplasmic, meaning two different copies of a gene. Homoplasmic, meaning you have the same variant on all copies of your gene. Compound heterozygote, two different variants, one on each one. Heteroplasmy, what percentage of mitochondrial DNA carries a particular variant? Threshold theory, you need a certain percentage of your DNA to carry a change or a certain percent of your mitochondria not to work right to show symptoms. Genetic testing 101 is what I'll talk about next month because I wanted to leave time for questions and I didn't want to rush people too fast. But essentially what I'm gonna talk about then is, okay, we understand what genes are. We understand the book metaphor. What's whole exome testing? What's whole genome? What does pathogenic mean? How do we interpret a variant of uncertain significance? Why can't you tell me yes or no what that's doing? How do we read these reports? What percentages matter? What are these key terms? And also limitations of different tests, right? And understanding that as well. So I'm gonna try my best to make a how-to guide for you guys because I think, I do it for my patients, I think it's really helpful because you can hear it from a doctor, and sometimes it makes sense. But then you go home and you pull that report out three years later and you're like, cool, this is in gibberish. What do I do with this? And so I think it's helpful to have something to try to refer back to that's like, this means this, to hopefully make it feel more accessible. I also will tell everyone, Tom Blue in her face, get copies of everything, keep them in the back of your closet and never throw them out. This is a giant game of telephone, the medical world, and it's not a very successful one, to be blunt. So that's part of why I'm so passionate about people actually understanding what they've had done. Because honestly, if it's not for you, the game of telephone might not be successful. And it's sad that that's put on patient shoulders, but it's the reality we're all used to dealing with. So again, this is Devin. This is my presentation. I have mito, I have mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, that rings a bell for anyone. But at the end of the day, not all of them have shiny names. It doesn't make them any of us valid as mito. And I will stop sharing my screen so people can actually see faces. Did I stop sharing my screen yet? No. My mouse disappeared, but I will do it in a sec. You can see my works background. There we go. Thank you, Devin, so much. Oh my gosh, I took copious notes and I have I have several questions too, but I'm gonna let um, other people, I see they're starting to put some in the chat. So guys, go ahead, feel free to raise your hand if you have questions or um, you can put them in the chat and uh, and Devin's gonna, gonna answer some of them. All right, well, the first one I see is Bill asking, can you have a very small percentage of mutation in saliva and muscle and then have a significant percentage in another tissue? Yes. Like the short answer is 100%. We're trying to guess what samples in your body might be most helpful. And we're trying to guess, well, if your blood looks this way, how might your liver look? But honestly, for some people with mito who are really having trouble finding their answer, or they do a genetic test and it shows a small percentage, but doctors are still really suspicious it's the problem, 
again, it's invasive, but often they will say something like, well, if your liver is causing most of your issues, let's do a liver biopsy and test the mutation level there. Some specialized labs will even do urine samples because they find that correlates well too. And so they'll try to test the DNA in your urine. At the end of the day, if they test a muscle that has a lot of symptoms and it's still a low percentage, it becomes more of a discussion of, well, if that's not your entire answer, could it still be a part of your answer? And it might be, right? And that's where you have to talk to a doc and really work it through because I also want to make sure we're not missing something else, right? We're blaming this 5% change that you carry. You've got pretty severe symptoms. So I'm like, all right, that could be contributing, but I also don't want to miss something else that's causing everything that maybe is treatable or is different than I know. Well, you know, you mentioned about talking to your doc. You mentioned how a lot of times as a genetic counselor, you partner with a doctor. I'm curious what that relationship is like from just from the standpoint, I mean, like how receptive are our primary care doctors typically to taking like your advice of which tests to order? And then I'm curious also if you work with functional medicine doctors sometimes um, outside of PCPs and stuff. Yeah, so it really varies depending on the clinical situation you're in. So for example, I worked at autism center. In that center, we didn't have a geneticist. I was working with developmental pediatricians and they would diagnose a kid with autism or an intellectual disability and then tag the GCs in. We would come in, run the tests, consent, people walk through, what does this mean if we find a diagnosis? And then they would retake over the care. Because in that scenario, you still need all the therapies if your kid has autism. The gene itself is not going to change that treatment plan. It's just going to be an addition to it. So a lot of places like that, or when I worked at a pregnancy center, you're paired with the doctors and they kind of tag you in as an expert. They're like, oh, patient brought in a report. I don't know what this means. Devin, you talk to them. And like so often I was literally like thrown into a room and they're like, help, because they know they don't know it. If you work with a geneticist or at like a really big children's hospital or in a genetics clinic, often you are paired with that doctor. You might work independently to consent for a test or explain it. But honestly, often the doctors in those scenarios, those geneticists, are the ones deciding what test is going to be run because they're the ones that are saying, okay, based on your physical exam, I think you really clearly have this syndrome versus it's somewhere in this box. We need to do something broader. In my experience, though, the second half of your question, working with PCPs or functional medicine doctors, as a genetic counselor, I don't work with a physician at my current job. We're a team of just genetic counselors. In some states like Washington, we can order the test and others we do have to partner with an MD. So far, I've never had an MD say no. Every single one I've ever called and said, hi, your patient found us. I want to order this test. Will you co-sign? So far, every single one has been like, oh, thank God. I don't understand any of this. Please help. Like they, they want the help. They feel at a loss. And they're looking at sometimes two-year wait lists to see a geneticist. And they're like, I don't want to wait two years for this patient. That's absurd. They're not doing well. They need help. Or they're a kid telling a three-year-old to wait two years. That's half their life. That does not feel very fair to those parents. So usually it pairs really well. Every blue moon you find a doctor that's like, I don't have time for this or I don't want to deal with it. Most of those patients have seen more than one doctor, right? So I've had a PCP go, oh, 
And then I call the card cardiologist and they're like, yep, you got it. Like usually there's somebody on the team that's like willing to play ball and wants answers too. I actually spent two hours last Friday or Thursday talking to a functional medicine doc out in Eastern Washington who found us online and was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you were a resource. I don't know what to order. I really don't know how to do this with insurance. It would be amazing to have that resource. And we talked for two hours about genetics and he's probably going to be sending us a whole pile of people now. So I find it normally goes well, especially functional medicine docs. They are more open to ordering like direct to consumer testing or other options that can be helpful, but can also leave patients really confused because they get a bunch of results that aren't written clinically or aren't run clinically. And so often are very happy to have someone who can either help order a clinical test from the start or sort through that to decide what of that do we even need to confirm. I will say sometimes there can be some issues just in that I will say that's a normal variant and they're like, I still want to prescribe a med for that. My approach is as long as the med has no side effects, go for it. Like normal variants are part of what makes us unique. So I'm not going to say don't take a supplement that might be helping you if it's helping you. I don't care why you're taking it to be blunt as long as it's not hurting you. I want you to do what works for you. And at the end of the day, that's a lot of mito treatment, right? Just doing what works for you. And so if they want to try something, even off of what I look at is 20% of people have it. So it's a normal variant. Hey, if it helps though, I'm not going to say don't do it. Like at the end of the day, I want to help you the best that we can. Did that answer the question? No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And it, um, more questions, as you can see, have, have started to filter yeah. in. So, <laughs> All right. So it looks like the other, the next one that I saw was the, I have a new variant on a gene and they said that I'm non-pathogenic. Can you explain that a little bit more? So non-pathogenic is a fancy way of saying it disrupts how the gene is working. We think it can cause symptoms, i.e. if you change the word cat to the word kitten, you're probably fine. That's probably a benign change. It doesn't change the meaning. But if you change the word cat to hat, well, then this recipe makes no sense. And that's how we look at genetic changes. We have to look at them and say, okay, have we seen it before? Does it disrupt the gene? Does it change the word? Is it in a crucial part of the gene? Like the put in the oven sentence compared to the like get the flour out of the cabinet sentence. It, we have to take all of those into account. So when we see a new variant, sometimes that means a new change in a person for the first time. Other times that means a variant we've never seen before. And it does honestly involve taking out a rubric and tallying up the points. Is this seen in healthy people at a high percentage? Point towards not pathogenic, or we call that benign. Have we seen this in other people with symptoms? And did it follow the symptoms in the family, right? It's from mom to daughter to son, and they all have it, and it's not in the other family members that don't. That's a point towards pathogenic. The annoying part is that's a long process. Sometimes we'll do everything that we can. And I'll say, I don't know. We got equal points on either side. We haven't seen this enough to say yes or no. Sometimes it's easy. And I'll be like, that affects iron levels. Let's check your iron. But most of the time, it's too vague to be an easy thing you can check with a biochemical test or an MRI. So we're stuck with a, this might be your answer. 
please check back and hopefully we'll find out more soon. Good news is we're doing genetic testing on millions of people every year, so we're moving in the right direction. But sadly, a lot of times we are stuck with a we don't know. But again, a genetic counsel will usually walk you through the evidence and explain why we don't know. Well, sadly, a lot of doctors will just say it was negative and send you home. And then you look at the report, you're like, there's five things on here. What did you mean negative? So I try to say, okay, this is what we know about these. So at least people understand why they're stuck in no man's land purgatory. We don't have answers instead of just dumping you there and being like, hope you're okay with your location. It doesn't make it easier, but I think it's helpful to know why you're stuck there. Um, another question, is it hard to differentiate between diabetic neuropathy and mitochondrial myopathy? It can be. I think that patients with mitochondrial disease, so myopathy means muscle disease, neuropathy means nerve disease. Typically, neuropathy presents very similarly, depending on even if there's different causes for it. So you can have diabetes cause the long nerves in your body to start to die off and have numbness in your hands and your feet. You can also have that due to your mitochondrial disease, not providing energy to those nerves and having them die out and having numbness in your hands and feet. Sometimes they can try to guess based on your other symptoms or the test called an NCS or M. EMG, where they stick little needles in you and shock them, or they just put little electrodes on you. Not the funnest test. I've had it. I have neuropathy, for example. Um, and they can sometimes say, yes, this looks like a, mito a muscular-based neuropathy. Or they might say, that test was normal, so it's small fiber, and that's more correlated to one thing versus another. So you really have to try to narrow it down. But if a patient seems to have mito and seems to have diabetes, to be honest, they're probably not going to be able to tell you exactly which one is causing these symptoms. But it's hard because neuropathy, if you have decreased sensation or decreased nerve signals going from your brain to your muscles, can lead to muscle issues over time. And that's where it's helpful to have that test done multiple times sometimes to track how it's changing. Sometimes they'll do like a skin biopsy to look at the nerves there. Sometimes it comes down to how much do you want to know, right? Like, ideally, we want everyone to get their diabetes under control to the best of their ability, no matter what. So often doctors do take the approach, well, let's try to treat your diabetes. If it gets better, it probably wasn't the mitochondria because diabetic neuropathy tends to ebb and flow more with how you're doing. Mitochondrial, you can gain it back, but it's not as common. It tends to be more of a slow progression. So they look at those clues to try to tell. But like, if I saw you on telehealth, I have no way of telling you. I can tell you this, but I can't tell you what the conclusion is. And that's where I'm like, punch you to an MD who can actually do those tests and maybe better guess for you what is going on. Next, and again, if I don't answer a question fully, feel free to comment too. A next question, can you comment on the reliability of muscle biopsy testing? Does the location, what muscle is biopsed? Process, lab quality experience, concentration of deficiencies or deficits, sorry, within the sample all contribute to the reliability of results. I'm a little dyslexic, like diagnosed in high school, so I sometimes struggle with reading out loud. But, I mean, yeah, so muscle biopsies, they used to be the gold standard. They used to be what everyone said to do to get diagnosed with mito. 
it's great and helpful for some people. To be honest, it's the only way my family found our answer. We looked in our muscle and saw we didn't have enough mitochondrial DNA and we were diagnosed with mitochondrial DNA depletion. But for a lot of people, it can get messed up. If they don't process it right, if they don't freeze it the right way, if they don't ship it correctly, you can get inconclusive results. A muscle biopsy also, there's a lot of different tests you can run on it. You can stain it in different ways. You can do different sorts of tests within it, biochemical and looking at it under a microscope. So we've also, I've had patients who had a muscle biopsy 30 years ago, and all it looked for was Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and nothing else. That muscle biopsy tells me nothing about Mito. Like, great that they ruled one thing out, but nowadays we try to rule out a lot more than one thing when we do one. So they are not all created equal. I would say that on average, most labs that they're sending them to, like they send them to like Mayo Clinic, Emory, Cincinnati Children's, CHOP, Columbia, a lot of those big centers, they do know what they're doing. I would say I would trust their results. But again, as your mito progresses, sometimes we will say, let's try it again. Or we might say, we did the thigh muscle because that's our standard we like to do on everyone so we know how to compare them equally. But maybe your arm muscles are what ran randomly are more affected. So we might do the second one on your arm because we're more likely to get an answer from it. And I fully acknowledge it doesn't feel great to be told like, let's pick on your muscle that's doing the worst and then let it heal from a biopsy. But there's a reason to that. And that is that hope that again, we might be able to find it better. Now, concentration of deficits, not totally sure what you're indicating. There are some studies that show if you have lots of different mitochondrial variants, they might all work together to cause problems. So that's a newer science, harder to pin down. Sometimes they also, though, can look at a muscle biopsy and say, you have ragged red fibers, which just means you have extra mitochondria. And your electron transport chain, what makes energy isn't working well. And we've noticed different amounts of certain chemicals. And your mitochondria just don't look normal under a microscope. So sometimes they will take all of those pieces of evidence and put it together to say, yes, this is clearly mito versus this is mito dysfunction, but I can't tell you if this is caused by something else or if that was the problem to start. So sometimes as you check more boxes, it makes it easier, but not always. Now, we only, I, I don't know if we have any time left. How late does this go? I have no idea. It can go as late as you wanted to. Technically, it's just supposed to be an hour, so maybe take okay. a couple more questions if you're, if you're able to. Yeah, so next question was, can you please comment on synergetic, I can never say that word, but I know what the word is, heterozygosity. Essentially, thank you for the definition. What it is, is it's two people who have, or one person has different changes in different genes. So you have a change in, I'm just gonna pick two random mito genes, G and TK2. We would normally expect you to need two changes in one gene to have a problem, but can those two totally separate genes who have different changes work together to cause dysfunction? The long answer is yes, <laughs> but we is really hard to pin it down. So essentially, when you look at science, it's easiest to prove simple things. So it's easiest to prove we saw mutation A in 100 people with mito, and we saw it zero times in 100 people without mito. Ergo, it probably causes mito. It's a lot harder to say 
like there's a Polji variant that 1% of Italians carry. It's a lot harder to say, well, 1% of the population has this change and maybe 0.1% of the population has the second change. Now let's try to find the subset of people that have both and then have enough of those people to correlate it to symptoms. It gets really difficult in part because we also tend to test people only for conditions that match their symptoms. So by default, most people with pull gene mutations are gonna be people who have had symptoms that overlap with pull G. So we also wanna be really careful to not just say, you have a change in a gene that correlates to your symptoms. So that change must be a problem. Well, we didn't look at the genes having to do with cancer, usually, um, for you. So because of that, maybe there's 20 other changes there, but we're not even talking about them because, to be honest, we never actually report out every change in every gene scene because we would be sending people home with a literal, like, Bible verse of changes. Like, it's, it's, there's thousands of them. So we know it can happen. It's best clarified, honestly, in research labs where they say gene A causes this enzyme to be low. It's in the same pathway as gene B. We also see that enzyme's low for you. So we do notice that the product at the end isn't working. And we do think A and B put together is causing your symptoms. Trying to find labs that can do that kind of work is extremely hard because it's honestly extremely expensive and extremely unique. Like each family is going to have different copies. Now, there are mito labs that are trying to figure that out. And there are labs, it's kind of like biobanks are talked a lot about where they say, we want to just collect your blood. We want to collect your DNA. Because if they can get a thousand patients, they can put all your genetic info through an AI machine pull out some patterns and then look into them. And that's hard to do that unless you just have lots of data. Good news is we're getting more and more data about healthy people's genetics all the time and we're getting more and more people with genetic testing done. But we don't have all the data we really need to conclusively answer that in a practical way for most families. Again, sometimes you're lucky and it is something we can see in your blood test and we can see a change. And sometimes carriers of autosomal recessive conditions do show symptoms. Again, there's an exception to every rule. So sometimes we do know, yes, this can cause symptoms for some people. And so when we put it all together, it can cause problems. I would say we're probably going to see a lot more of this in the next couple of decades, because especially as we start healthy people testing right and left because of companies like 23andMe, like everyone's doing genetics now. The good news is that just gives us a lot more data to work with. And so as we get that, it's easier to then find out, A, what is normal that we used to think was rare, but also, B, sometimes it really helps just figure out individual families and figure out how do you compare it all together? And also, how mild can it be? Maybe we only saw this change in, to be blunt, kids who passed away because that's who we tested. And that's kind of the story of Mito in a lot of ways. Now we're finding out, oh, hey, a lot of adults have it too, because we weren't looking at adults for this. Now that we're starting to test everyone for everything, not 100%, but we're heading in that direction, we're finding out, hey, that thing that we thought could only cause serious symptoms is now causing mild symptoms too. And as we learn more of that stuff, 
we'll probably get more answers in terms of how these mild things compound. But first, we have to even prove that these mild things, I mean, that these changes cause mild symptoms. And so again, it takes a lot of work. Um, the next question I'm going to address is the more broad one, which is, can you comment on how much we know about large mitochondrial DNA deletions versus mutations? Large deletions can be hard because they can also, remember I said mito dysfunction can have to do with aging. Large deletions can also pop up due to age or due to other changes. So for example, if you have a gene that is helping your body regulate your mitochondrial DNA, it's not working right, you might end up with a lot of deletions or random changes. And so that can throw off the test. So I have seen some large deletions that when you go talk to, you know, the mito clinic experts, they're like, oh, yeah, that's an artifact. Like we see that all the time. It is something that just happens as muscle tissue gets older or just as people get older. And so it can get more complex. I would say that on average, a lot of mitochondrial deletions do fall into certain buckets. So if people have ever heard of conditions like CPEO or KSS, those are often following this deletion bucket. And we're like, we see the same deletion, we see the same symptoms. But again, not always. But it does make it easier sometimes to really give people answers because we're like, yes, we've seen that one many times. This is what it is. Like I said, there's only 39 genes. There's only so many deletions, right? There's only so many possibilities. For mutations, especially because they can vary throughout your body and you can have, honestly, one person could have a thousand different versions of their mitochondrial DNA, all at small percentages, it does make it a lot harder for us to sort through them. So I will say that on average, I would, I guess, as a ballpark, say we probably know less about those because again, don't have a magical way to test someone and know, okay, you've got 10% of it here, 1% of it here, 5% of it here. And so we're stuck trying to guess and trying to piece it together. And so, for example, one of the common MELAS mutations that's in mitochondrial DNA, about one in 200 people out of some studies in Europe are found to carry it in their DNA at some percentage. So we know that that's surprisingly common but for most of those families, it's going to stay at such a small percentage, you're never going to have a kid with symptoms. We only found this through testing lots of healthy random people. And so, right, like that's where it gets really complicated. That's a mutation we know well. We only recently figured out, oh, maybe that's a lot more common than we thought. And so it does make it really tricky. You're a lot more likely to get a result that lists a bunch of variants for mitochondrial DNA where they go, we think it's benign, but we're still giving you this list because who knows what we'll know in 10 years. And that's what makes it really tricky for families. Um, I will also say we didn't used to have guidelines on how to determine if they were pathogenic, disease-causing, or benign, normal variation. We did remedy that. They do have guidelines now. But the fact that the guidelines came out in the last five years is telling as to how we're doing in terms of knowing how to interpret these. Right, this is not guidelines that we've had for 20 years like the other genes. It took a long time to figure it out. And I'm sure those guidelines are gonna get revised as we learn more. It was hard to write. It took a lot of effort and a lot of heads putting their minds together at the Mito Centers to write it. 
And I think that's sadly really telling of we're working on it, but it's a lot harder to figure those out. Um, for the other question, the gene TSFM, know if we have a pattern yet of what we want to do on these calls in terms of just like generic how precise do we want to get with people's questions we'll have to pan it out um just because in theory people could you could start uploading results and we could go down a lot of wormholes trying to answer every single like this mutation does this but i mean the general concept of that gene is it's autosomal recessive Right, so you have two copies of the gene. Typically, we expect both copies not to work before they show symptoms, and it is associated with, we like to have fancy names, combined oxidative phosphorylation deficiency number three, which is a really fancy way of saying that the energy transport chain that makes energy in the mitochondria is not working the way that it should. That's a really small version of that explanation. And again, like typically, this is something where you would expect to need two variants, so both copies of the gene not working, before we would expect you to show symptoms for it. I'm pretty sure it's one that is most recognized in younger kids is where a lot of the papers are out of. I think it's a less commonly reported variant, but I'd have to dig to confirm that. But if in my brain, I have it categorized as one of those ones where there's a couple of papers on it, but not like hundreds like you would see for Polgy or some of the other genes. Which again, we have over 20,000 genes in our body. So sadly, most genes fall into that bucket of there's limited papers on it. And that's part of why, again, I always say you have to be careful what doctors see like in the literature. We often will be like, this has only been reported in people with really severe symptoms. And hey, I don't want you to freak out assuming you're gonna get all of those because it's probably in a lot of less severely affected people too, but that's not as likely to get published and also not as likely to be the first thing discovered. So we do have to always take everything that we find online with a, a little bit of a grain of salt in terms of predicting symptoms. But if you have a particular question about that gene, let me know. But that's the quick, what is the gene? But I know we've run a little bit over and I'm on the West Coast. So I'm like, it's only six, but I know it's nine there. And so people probably are actually being tired because energy disorder. But I'll be back in a month and I'll be back in a month after that. And we'll have more time for questions as that goes on. And really depending on how many people show up, we'll decide how much we want to dive into very random questions. Like what is this one gene or this one mutation? And to be honest, if we get down to the mutation level, I will probably be talking on the fly and you will watch me quickly looking up the mutation and all the databases in the background. I do not have them memorized. There's too many, that's not how genetics works. We don't bother memorizing most of the stuff, to be honest. We get the stuff we know all the time that we see, but I'm gonna be real. There's a lot we don't bother to memorize because it's gonna be wrong in two years anyway. So if I memorize it now, I'm just gonna tell you something wrong in two years. So I look up everything every time I talk to everyone about it in case there's something new. But it was nice to, well, see everyone, see the four people who showed their faces, not that you feel obligated <laughs> to, that's totally fine. But hi, Anissa. I didn't know you were here. I see Anissa every Friday on our Friday calls. But Hello. It's good to see everyone and I'll see y'all next month. Thanks so much, Devin. We really, really appreciate you taking this time. Um, 
Your presentation was amazing. And I know we all learned different things and I'm sure giggled along the way. Um, some comedy relief in there too. <laughs> um, and I just, I appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to share. So guys, we will be here again, February 22nd at 8 PM. And, um, this, this particular, um, presentation and on February's will be recorded. So you'll be able to review. I know I'm going to go back and re-listen just to make sure that I've absorbed all of the great information. So just uh, keep an eye out for it in the weeks to come. And we look forward to talking with you soon. Take care. Have a lovely week, you guys. Thank you. Bye.